Good day, everyone. Welcome to History Here and Now. We're here featuring some amazing stories about people, culture, and just about everything else on history. I'm your host, Thomas Richardson, and welcome to the first episode of this new podcast adventure. Each week, I'll deliver a new historical topic looking at a story in new ways. We can easily overlook a lot when it comes to history, but the more we stay informed, the more we can understand about the past and ourselves. Today's topic is going to be an interesting one. This is about the Battle of Kassar Itcher. If you don't know what it is, then you're probably not alone. But if you can think of any other time that the United States actually fought on the same side as Germany in World War II, well, this is one strange battle you'll be interested in learning about. Wars are filled with narratives of the gallant and brave. Stories of units like the 101st Airborne, the Army Rangers, Navy SEALs, Richmond Gray, Special Air Service, and others fill dramatic accounts of pivotal historical events. They become immortalized in pop culture like Band of Brothers, 12 O'Clock High, Sands of Iwo Jima, Zero Dark Thirty. But what about the more bizarre? Are there accounts that challenge how traditional views of our enemies? This post came as a special request. What about the strangest battles of World War II? Well, I give you the battle for Castle Izzer. Fought three days before victory in Europe Day, troops from the U.S. 12th Armored Division joined the Wehrmacht soldiers and French prisoners of war to defend Edward Castle from a contingent of S.S. Panzergrenadier hell-bent on inflicting reprisals and stubbornly refusing to surrender. For the only time in the war, American and German troops fought together in what many historians have dubbed the strangest battle of the war. Edward Castle rises above the small town of its namesake in Tyrol, a state in western Austria. The 14th century castle served many noble courts and was nearly destroyed in the German Peasants' War, but in 1878, after years of decay, the present-day castle was restored. Following the Anschluss in 1938, which was Austria's annexation by Germany, the Reich leased the castle from its previous owner and then just later seized it by Heinrich Himmler in 1943, they transformed it into a prison as a subcamp under the Dachau concentration camp system. But its prisoners weren't just like any other POWs or civilian prisoners. They were primarily high-profile personalities like former prime ministers, army generals, resistance members, and other political leaders. As the war progressed, more prisoners from Eastern Europe were transferred to Edward Castle for manual labor. No more than about 50 prisoners were ever held at the castle during the war, and almost no one there thought they would ever be liberated because of their remoteness and small size. Now, soldiers of the, now, as the Allies pushed into central Germany, the handwriting was pretty much on the wall for the Wehrmacht. Surrender was only a matter of time, and troops were deserting for the Allied lines every day. However, diehard holouts of the Waffen-SS and Nazi zealots pressed the fight and refused to give in, even after Hitler's suicide on April 30th, 1945. Now, four days later, on May 3rd, a resistance member, Zovomir Krovich, was dispatched from Itter Castle on the pretense of running an errand for the prison staff, but he was clandestinely carrying a letter requesting a rescue from the Allies. He traveled over 40 miles to Innsbruck, but the record ends there. No one had ever heard back from him. Following this loss and the death of the former commander of Dachau, Edward Weiter, who fled to the castle after Dachau's liberation and died under, we'll say, suspicious circumstances, the prison warden, Sebastian Wimmer, and all remaining guards just threw down their weapons and abandoned their posts. Now, these remaining POWs seized the leftover firearms, and then they had their cook, Andreas Krobot, was sent out with another message for the Allied lines. 
He decided to bike to the closest town of Vorkl, only a few miles away, and he made contact with the local Austrian resistance. Now, within this resistance was a key character, Major Josef Gangl, a Wehrmacht commander who, in the course of his career, defected to the resistance along with some fellow soldiers. Gangl no longer believed in defeating the Allies or even supporting the Nazi party, but was saving lives from the Waffen-SS and immediately reached out for help, both from local civilians and Allied forces. So Captain John Jack Lee Jr., a tank commander with the 23rd Battalion, 12th Armored Corps, and a reconnaissance unit of Sherman tanks were stationed barely 13 miles away when Gongle contacted them. He presented an ominous picture on what would happen if the Waffen-SS breached the castle before the Allies arrived. Every prisoner was going to be summarily executed without question. Well, Captain Lee and Gongle drove together on the personal recon of the castle, and after finally requesting reinforcements for the 142nd Infantry, the Americans and sympathetic Germans made for their liberation move. The first enemy they encountered was the logistics. <laughs> now, small, road, small, narrow roads and bridges blocked some of the Sherman tanks from traveling to the castle, which forced Lee to leave them behind as a rear guard. But this would later prove crucial as it otherwise kept the majority of enemy forces from moving down the main corridor and overwhelming the castle's defense. Now, about 36 men arrived to evacuate the garrison, and while the prisoners rejoiced the liberation, they were less enthusiastic about the small size of the mission. Reports of the whole Waffen-SS companies of 100 to 200 strong were in the area, so how could they expect to make it out alive with just this handful? On the evening of May 4th, Captain Lee moved every defender into position around the castle's main keep and placed his personal Sherman take, the Basatin Jenny, at the front entrance. He, Gongle, and other German officer, Kurt Siefried Schrader, wanted the prisoners to take shelter, but the prisoners refused, choosing to fight with the Germans and Americans. Throughout the night, SS patrols harassed and probed the castle defenses, looking for any weaknesses. Mortar rounds and sniper fire slashed about the fortress as occupants prepared for the assault they knew would come at dawn. Now, at approximately 4 a.m., the 17th SS Panzer Grenadier Division launched their attacks from the north and west, hitting the castle with grenades and artillery and mortar fire. Lee Sherman tank killed off the enemy for a few hours before it was finally demolished by an 88mm artillery shell. And before the battle, Gengel radioed to the Austrian resistance to send as many men as possible and request Allied artillery strikes. To his dismay, though, only three people responded. Two German soldiers and an Austrian resistance fighter who was just a teenager. But as the day wore on, Intercastle's defenders were running out of ammunition and hope. The rescue operation degraded into a last stand for the Americans, Germans, and French prisoners. Captain Lee needed a status support on any reinforcements from the 142nd Regiment, but radio communications were cut off. One prisoner, though, a famous tennis, tennis athlete named Jean Barada, volunteered to carry a dispatch by running through the SS Gauntlet. He was quite literally their only hope for bringing back much-needed troops and supplies, so Lee gave him the go-ahead. Broda leapt over the castle walls, ran down the road, dodged a multitude of bullets, and successfully delivered a message at the regimental headquarters. He then made an additional request, a U.S. Army uniform, in order to disguise himself from the Germans and rejoin the battle. By late afternoon, the tide of the battle had turned, and the SS quickly surrendered. Over 100 enemy soldiers were taken prisoner, and the escaped survivors surrendered two days later to the 101st Airborne at Roddick Ergen. 
For his courageous defense of Inner Castle, Captain Lee was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, the Army's second highest honor, only behind the Medal of Honor. Ironically, the only defender to be killed in action was Major Gongle. While moving former French Prime Minister Paul Reynaud to cover, a sniper shot Gongle in the head, killing him instantly. He was later venerated as an Austrian national hero. Now, moving away from the battle, traditional historiography about World War II tells how the Allies proudly defeated the Axis powers and triumphed in both Europe and the Pacific theaters. You know, we constantly promoted our accomplishments and tended to overlook the nuances of those who actively resisted the course of our belligerence. For decades, the story of the Battle of Castle Eder was practically a historical footnote, as it didn't really qualify as a major operation. It was near the end of the war, and Germany had all but collapsed, and senior commanders were focused more on Berlin than some of these other smaller geographic areas. But what makes this battle unique is not only the Wehrmacht teaming up with the Americans, but that party ideologies were overridden by the higher moral ground of saving human lives and preventing further atrocities. While the Waffen-SS saw their Wehrmacht counterparts as traitors to the Nazis, the Americans saw them as comrades wanting to rescue themselves and the castle's prisoners from certain death. The reconstruction of Germany during the Cold War was painful. War criminals being brought to trial, communist subterfuge by the Soviet Union, and roller coaster economic recovery and more tested the strength of German society. Even before the text on Germany's instrument of surrender was typed up, American-German relations began healing just a little bit through the trials of battle on the walls of Itzer Castle. Thanks so much for joining us for our podcast. We'll see you next week.